And, um, you know, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, the, the uh, events around us, the things that we see, the things that you pick up in the news, it reminds us. We can't, we can't escape uh, some awareness that uh, there, there is a, an animosity, an opposition um, against God that, that flows over to against his creation. You know, the, uh, the uh, Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? And they rage against the Lord and against his anointed. And that, that plays out, it has played out over the years in animosity against Jewish people. Somebody was talking to me just this morning. Why is it this, uh, this, uh, this hatred, this ill will toward a particular people that seems to continue through history and rises up even again today? And it's because God has made particular promises to that ethnic group of people as a demonstration of his character to all of humanity. And so God's name is at stake here in carrying out those promises to these people, and the enemy would thwart that. And so also God has made promises to those people who are identified with his son, who bear the name Christian as followers of Christ. And so the enemy has a target there as well. It's not surprising that you see other movements. You see, uh, you, you see the, the, the radicalized side of Islam expressing this hatred against what they consider the Christian West. We see um, targeted um, anger or outburst overflowing against Christians, even in our own society. There, there was some side of that, something against followers of God and Christians in that shooting down in Roseburg. And uh, it plays out in a lot of different places and a lot of different levels. But um, easily we forget, for instance, not, uh, two, uh, several months ago, one of the things that was back into my mind was a fire chief in Atlanta who was, who was um, uh, forced out of his job. He was fired as the fire chief because uh, the, uh, tolerant male believe, uh, the tolerant mayor believed that this fire chief could not be tolerant enough. And because of what he taught in his Sunday school class outside of work, that uh, you're one of those Christians, so you probably can't be tolerant enough, so we can't tolerate you. And that plays out in various other places. People experience that pressure within the workplace. You've seen it played out in, 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 in forms of business. We saw it very recently in schools. A, a coach in Bremerton um, was what the administration was afraid he was oh, I don't want to say, um, endorsing and imposing a particular form of religion by praying in silence at the end of the game out in the middle of the field, that he couldn't be allowed to pray quietly. And if other players joined him or not, that couldn't be allowed on the field after a football game because that was somehow endorsing a religion. We weren't told at the time who he was praying to because you couldn't know because it was silent and yet still... That, that expression of a, of a conviction. The same thing, it, there's somehow that intimidates something today in the same way that it did in the first century. That if, if I have a conviction that I follow the true and the living God, above all else that I have faith and confidence in Him, that, that, that He is that higher authority, that also threatens anyone or anything else who would suppose themselves to be the authority over you and of others. 
There's something essential about a freedom of religion or freedom to worship that the church has always supported in societies, not simply because we want to worship freely. You cannot have the free expression of belief in Christ unless people also have the freedom not to. The church has always, or, or should always, I should say, because it hasn't always, but the church always should support a freedom of conscience and expression because that's the only way that we can have genuine expression of our own faith. You know, it's interesting, there's a, there's a Pew Research study out, that's, it's been in the news a lot, about um, patterns of faith and the direction of faith in America. And so it's been said, oh, the nuns, those who, those who don't have any faith in any, any religion, when you ask them what religion is theirs, what expresses their faith, they say none. There's this rise of the nuns that, and I don't mean Catholic nuns, I mean nun religion. And, and that uh, people are saying, well, see, people are leaving the church and they're, and they're identifying as nun instead. And really what's happening is it used to be societally advantageous to identify with a faith. But it doesn't anymore. So those that would have been considered nominal Christians or in-name Christians, those who went along with the crowd because the crowd went to church, well, that doesn't matter anymore. There's no attraction to that. There's no benefit in our present society for that. So that practice is decreasing. It means that for those who are followers of Jesus, there is, a, there is a sharper contrast. You can expect it. We should not be surprised that if we're going to step out, if we're going to step into living in faith, by faith, we're going to live out our faith, if we're going to do that, we should not be surprised. We should expect opposition. We shouldn't be surprised by trouble that comes, whether it's overt, over the top, or whether it's more subtle, whether it's more nuanced, whether it's a, a, a quiet jab that nobody else really notices. We shouldn't be surprised when those things happen. That's exactly what Peter tells us in the passages before us today in 1 Peter chapter 4. The passage we looked at last week told us that, that, it's, that we need to we need to get in the game. We need to uh, be good stewards of these differing gifts that God has given us, whether it's speaking or serving. We need to put those giftings, how God has shaped us and made us in his body, we need to put those into use as good stewards of the differing graces of God, the manifold grace of God. And yet when you do, it might not go so well. It might not go so well. You might not get the response that you'd hope for. You might not see your serving bear out the kind of result that you had hoped for. You might not see the fruit of it yet. You may plant and water diligently, and yet you don't see any increase. You may give yourself and have other people slap you down for it. Sometimes that happens within the church family, unfortunately. Certainly, you could be ridiculed outside of the church for a sacrificial commitment for doing what God would have you to do. But Peter says, don't be surprised. It may not go well yet. It may not go well, yet we'll do it anyway. It may not go well yet because, as we just sang, we're not home yet. 
Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 12, he says that we shouldn't be surprised that trials that come along to test our faith. Look at 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. You'll find us, if you're in the Pew Bible this morning, you'll find us on page 1016. He says, Beloved, and now we, we get the pastor side of Peter again. We get that tender expression, loved ones of God and loved by him. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, at intense trouble, at excruciating sometimes suffering you may endure. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is not strange. It is not unusual. It ought not to be unexpected that Christians find themselves unpopular in the world. That actually is normal. Jesus said, they have hated me, and so they're going to hate you. He says, actually, it's not personal. It's not about you. It's about him. And that's what Peter is going to tell us here, that it's an identification of him in us and us with him. It's not a strange thing. Don't be surprised by these trials. These tests are actually opportunities. He says these trials that come to test you. The notion behind those words is that this is a demonstration. It is a proving. It's opportunities for the reality of your faith and your hope in God to be seen, to be evident. When all goes well, it doesn't really matter. But when trouble comes, when pressure comes... That's when the reality of faith is made evident and there are all kinds of folks around you in this room and outside of this room that need to see the reality of your faith. Not merely in the okay times when things are going pretty well, but in troubled times when hardship comes. What does faith look like then? Not only do people around you need to see the reality of your faith, but God is glorified. In the midst of trouble, in your hope and your confidence and your trust in God, your willingness to serve him anyway, that glorifies him as a God who is worth trusting in. God is worthy of laying myself down. If that was true, if his will was worthy for the Son of God himself to lay himself down, how much more are we? How much more will we? God is worthy of it. These are the trials of our faith, the testing of our faith, if they come, when they come, not unusual, should be expected, and those are opportunities for real faith to be seen. And people need to see real faith. This week, this next week, expect to be challenged. Expect to be challenged for something that you'll do or something that you won't do. You know, this will, this will especially be true in, in the area of worship of Jesus, that you are a worshiper and a follower of Jesus, and others are not. And others may ridicule you for that. They may hold that against you. They may make judgments and caricatures about you because of that. You see, there's a, there's a tolerance out there that is tolerant of everything except something as Christianity that would claim absolute truth. And that's not so different now from the, from the first century. There was a polytheism then. There was, a, there was an acceptance of all kinds of gods and religions then, except those who would dare to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except by him. That kind of exclusiveness drove them crazy. 
crazy with hatred and persecution for followers of Christ. He says, rejoice, in fact. Expect to be challenged and rejoice in Christ when you are. Rejoice, why? The following verses are going, to, are, are going to tell us a couple of times to rejoice, and they're going to tell us why is it that we would rejoice in Christ. Look at verses 13 to 18. Same chapter, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. He says, but rejoice. Don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice. There's the command. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Rejoice, first of all, that you are in Christ, and Christ is being seen in you. Rejoice that the Spirit rests upon you. You have been identified with Christ. You are united with Him. You are joined with Him. And so hatred out there, even in the spiritual realm, it is against Christ, is now against you. But that is simply evidence of your identification with Him. It's also evidence that people around you identify you with him. That the spirit of Christ rests upon you. Could it be that they, say some, they see something of God in you? Something that reminds them of their creator, that reminds them then also of their accountability to him. And when they see somebody else who is willingly accountable to God, that reminds them of an accountability that they are desperately running from. So Rejoice. Rejoice if you're worth taking a shot at. It's because your faith is considered dangerous. And it is dangerous. It can change everything. This faith, this following of Jesus turned the world upside down. And here and there, it can do the same thing today. It is a dangerous thing. It, it goes against the norm. It goes against the, the desperate attempts of society to somehow hold things all together. It contradicts all of that and says, no, the world is upside down and needs to be turned completely over, completely right side up. And that's what the gospel does. Returning this rebellion's province to accountability to the God who made us and who gave himself for us. Rejoice that you are in Christ and Christ is seen in you. If you are suffering, be sure it's for the right reasons, he says. Rejoice, the spirit of Christ rests upon you. You share Christ's sufferings. He suffered for us, and now you suffer for that same testimony of faith. Rejoice and be glad when his glory is going to be revealed. His glory is coming. And he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You know, it's interesting, the name Christian. Historians tell us that it was originally a term of derision. Those little Christ, those followers of the one who claimed to be Christ that Rome executed. Christians. It rolled off the tongue with a bit of scorn. Christians. And you are one of those. You are one of those who follow him whom the world rejected, whom they said wasn't worthy of life. And so Paul says, we who follow him, 
We who would tell others of Jesus, we who want to represent him as ambassadors for Christ, we are considered the off-scouring of all things. We are considered like that take-the-kitchen-sink right? And you've got dirty pots and pans, and you've got this baked-on crud on those dirty pots. Well, maybe you don't have this baked-on crud that burns on the bottom. When I cook things, I get a lot of that. You have this baked-on crud, and when you soak it for a while, it's this slimy, ucky stuff that's good for nothing but going down the garbage disposal. That's the off-scouring. And that's what the world thinks of Christians. We don't fit. We're not worth anything in that sense of what we would have to contribute most, which is look at Jesus. He is the Savior for us, for our own guilt, for our own brokenness. Not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. And they say, we don't want any part of that. We don't want it. We rejected him. We re- will reject you. But if you're going to suffer, be sure that it's for the right reasons. Look again at verses 15 and 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief an evildoer, a murderer. Jesus called even slander murder. Certainly there's murder in our society. Go to Chicago. Well, goodness, the uh, shootings occurring seems like almost daily in North Portland. Our society is broken. There's murder all around us. Options 360 exist because murder and abortion exists. And yet Jesus called even slander against another person murder. You know, we can easily retaliate against those who trouble us. We can easily retaliate against them and talk against them and slander them back. And the Lord says, no. If you hate someone, you've already killed them in your heart. Don't suffer as murderers. Don't be guilty of the same slander that others would heap on us. Don't be guilty of theft, taking what is not ours. Uh, Cheating. Getting a better deal at somebody else's expense. Shorting our taxes a little bit because, ah, it doesn't really matter and the government's going to waste it on ridiculous stuff anyway. Don't let us suffer for murder, for theft, for evil. There's plenty of evil in the world. There's plenty of ways in which people use and misuse others as object for their own gain or pleasure or their own advancement. And the last one here in this list, it's interesting. Murder, theft, evil, and meddling. I wonder if Peter knew something about the church then that is not so dissimilar to the church now. This word meddling may not mean what you think it means. It may not refer so much to how you get involved in the life of the person sitting next to you. Now, what the word means, the word comes from, it's interesting. I looked this word up in the dictionary, altrepiscopos. I may not be pronouncing that right. But it's, it's combined with the word episkopos for bishop or overseer. One who oversees or supervises some of the work of others. And the first part of the word refers to things that do not belong to you in that they belong to somebody else. Something that's not yours because it's someone else's. And so what this word meddling means is you make yourself an overseer of something that is not yours. You make yourself a supervisor of affairs that are not yours to supervise. And especially that would concern those who are outside the church. That The church is quick to tell people out there how they should live and what they should do. Now, we have a basis for that in the terms of God is our creator. 
and everyone is accountable to him. And yet, I should not be surprised that those who do not believe in God do not follow godly morality. I shouldn't be surprised at that. And where I have call to, to call to morality, to call walking in the light is those who are children of the light, those who do belong in the light. Where if, 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 if to meddle is to be overseeing what is not mine, what is mine? You know, I'm in kind of a unique role. I am a, um, an overseer in the sense, a, a pastor, an episkopos, an overseer in the church. Our elders are that. And, yeah, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna select a, an, an elder at the meeting next week. I'll be talking about church leaders actually next week. It comes up next in First Peter, so it's nice that we scheduled our meeting around that. But this, this, this overseeing, so I'm in a unique role. I'm actually paid to meddle. Are you jealous? It's a good job, huh? You're actually paid to meddle in other people's stuff. But whose stuff am I paid to meddle in? Whose stuff ought you to meddle in? Sir, what is my business? First of all, my own spiritual growth is my business. That's what I better be overseeing. I better look to myself. I better keep watch over myself. Those are the words Peter uses. Those are the words that Paul told to Timothy. To keep watch of yourself. Consider yourself, your own actions, and your own doctrine first. Start there. But also, we're responsible for family. We're responsible for brothers and sisters. We are accountable to one another. We'll be talking some about that next week. We should look to one another, and yet we should leave room for Romans 14. There are gray areas. There are debatable things. There are matters of conscience that I believe this is something I cannot participate in. For instance, a Christian baker and a same-sex marriage. Should that baker bake the cake for that wedding? Or a photographer? Should that photographer participate in this event? One says, no, I cannot, and there might be civil penalties, but I'm not going to do it. I can't do that. That is a violation of my conscience. I understand that to be me personally affirming and endorsing by my own artistic participation. I'm participating in that event, and by conscience, I can't do that. And some Christians will line up and applaud. And other Christians will, will line up and fault fine and say, you should be subject to government authorities. You, sh- you should obey the laws of the land. You should not take such a stand. A photographer the same way. One will say, I cannot do that. Another will, will, will sit down and, and explain their faith. They say, you know, I'm willing to serve everybody, but, but I, I, I want you to know that, you know, that's not something that I personally approve of. But as a professional photographer, I will still... I will still take the, sh- t- take the job, I will, sh- I-, I will take the shoot, but uh, you might be happier with the results from somebody that is enthusiastically supportive of what you're doing. That you, you, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to support somebody in this job who, who shares your perspective, explains where they're at and why they're where they're at, and yet is willing to still, and well, which of those is the right approach? You see, there are matters of conscience that we have to give room for even as we're going to meddle in one another's lives. And I'm encouraging you to meddle in one another's lives. We do not want to... Be, be careful here. We're going to become the, known as the first church of meddlers. <laughs> it's probably not helpful for church growth, I don't suppose. But I do not want us to be a, a church of anonymity. 
A church where nobody has any idea about what anyone else is really in the midst of in their life and what it is that is challenging or threatening or eating away at their faith, what it is that's discouraging and dragging them down. We need to know, we need to be able to get, you know why we gather together? Hebrews 10 tells us to don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together for the purpose of preaching. Well, that's that's true, but that's not in that verse. That verse says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together to encourage and to provoke one another in love and good deeds. We need to be involved somehow in the lives of one another so that we can encourage and provoke one another to love and good deeds. In that way, we need to be meddlers, but we ought not to be meddling, overseeing in things that do not belong to us and intruding into the outside world in ways that gives them a reason to strike back against us. Toward outsiders, outsiders we ought to listen better, love anyway, evangelize relationally. He says, so don't, don't suffer for the wrong reasons, verse, 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 verse 15, but in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. There's a flyer in your bulletin this morning that's for the, uh, uh, that this Sunday is a reminder to pray for the persecuted church. Uh, one of the people who is the face of that movement presently, but, but, but certainly is not the focus of it because this is happening all around the world in many different places. But it's Pastor Saheed Abendini, third anniversary of his, of his imprisonment in Iraq, but uh, many other places. That, and, and there's a list on the back of ways that we can pray for the persecuted church, because these are our persecuted family, as they so helpfully point out. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being actively and viciously persecuted for their faith all around the world in ways that we are not. And we, we need to be careful about how we, how we uh, hold ourselves up as objects of persecution. We may be insulted, as Peter says here in verse 15. We may be ridiculed. We may be opposed. We may pay a price for the expression of our faith. And don't be surprised if that happens. And yet we also must uphold. Are there ways we can tangibly help? And certainly we will pray for those who are persecuted in places far from us, places where it's more difficult to be a Christian than it is for us here. In the times when you feel a little bit of a sting, remember that you have a brother or sister in Christ somewhere that is experiencing far worse for nothing more than that they too name the name of Christ. We will suffer as a Christian. You know, identification with Jesus was scornful then, and it's scornful now. Other religions are okay. You know, we, we came across something on our, in our study on Wednesday night. Um, Pastor John Drury was sharing with us, and he, and he, he uh, shared out of John 9 an example. John 9, the blind man, as an example of a man standing firm in his faith in the midst of criticism and attack, in the midst of opposition. It was a great, it was a great study, and he pointed something out in John chapter 9 and verse 24. Something all of a sudden struck me and became clear to me. I want you to look at this verse again. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind. They called him back in to, to question him again. And, the, and they, they told him, give glory to God, for we know that this man is a sinner. They'd already, tied him, they'd already tried to pin him down. Who, who you do say healed you? This Jesus? Well, he couldn't have healed you because he did it on the Sabbath. That can't be from God. And, and are you sure you were blind 
anyway. How do we know that you haven't been able to see all along? And they went on and they attacked his testimony one way after another. They brought him back in again, put the pressure on more. And this time you see what they're saying, we'll give you an out. You don't have to be expelled from the synagogue. You don't have to be kicked to the side of society. You could stay in the club if you will give glory to God more generally. Just leave this Jesus out of it. Now that works in our society too. If you will just give glory to God generally, that'll be okay. That'll be, that'll be relatively safe. That'll be pretty much harmless as long as you don't get particular about what you mean by God. But just leave Jesus out of it. That's the pressure that's upon us. The same pressure that's on him is the pressure that's on us. Just leave Jesus out of it and everything will be okay. And yet we can't. Because Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He is how we know God. He is the truth. And he is the only way to God. He is the, the way to eternal life. Beware of that pressure to leave Jesus out of it. Or finally, rejoice that God's justice will... Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice even that Christ is being seen in me. Rejoice that I have the privilege of suffering in his name. You remember when the disciples were beaten by the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts early? They, were, they, would, they, they, they refused to stop testifying about Jesus. They were beaten for it, and they went out rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. Rejoice if we are identified with Christ, but rejoice also. Let every injustice remind you that we're not home yet, but we will be. You see, it may not go well yet, but it must go well because God is good and God is just and he has washed away our sin in Christ. He said, whoever will humble himself in Christ, God will exalt him in due time. He will raise us up. He will lift us up. There is justice in God's created order. He says it's time in verse 17 for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain it in a verse that doesn't seem to help a whole lot. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That quote is from Proverbs chapter 11. And in Proverbs chapter 11, there's a whole series of verses paralleling the outcomes of the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous end up doing well. In the Proverbs, ideal example of this is wisdom and this is how it ought to work. In the general rule, in God's created order, this is how it works. Righteousness goes well for you, and unrighteousness does not. The one who lives by wickedness will die by wickedness. The one who lives by the sword and violence will die by the sword and violence. And, 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 and so if there, was, if, there is a, if there is a justice in God's created order, first of all, then God will be just in vindicating those who belong to him who have unjustly suffered. God's justice must, in the end, be vindicated. That's the first side of it. The second side of it is God will also be just in his judgment. If, if the society, the world, those who, do, who, who are, are rebelling against God, if they will persecute, if they will now judge those who belong to God, is God not just in the future for judging those who have judged unjustly the ones who belong to him? 
Shall not God count, hold them accountable? Shall not God hold the world accountable for its rejection of his son in a brutal murder? You say, well, that was then. That wasn't now. That wasn't these people today. But these people today continue to live out the rejection of Christ as they continue to oppose or trouble or persecute those who belong to Christ for no other reason than that. Now, our call is to be sure that we give them no other reason. Make it hard to be troubled. Make it hard to be insulted, not in that you fit in so well, but that you are just so kind and so gracious and so merciful anyway, so forgiveness, so gentle, that even when they mistreat you, you would still look for a way to bless those who persecute you, to bless and curse not, so that God's Justice is all the more vindicated in his day. Finally, he says, if we're looking to God's justice ultimately in his day, he says in verse 9, he closes this section with these words, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, God is sovereign, God is in control, let those who suffer according to God's will, not because of our own guilt, not because of our own meddling or evil, but if we suffer for the name of Christ according to God's will, even as Jesus suffered himself according to God's will, let us entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing right. Trust God to do what's right about your suffering for doing what's right. Did you get that? Trust God that he will do what's right. He will vindicate. Trust your creator to do what's right about your suffering for doing what's right. Don't be afraid then for the short term that comes because God has the long term. If you know and long for what's right, how much more does the God who created that? You know, when we see, see that, what happened in Paris, and our hearts ache, you know why our hearts ache? Because God made us. Because God made us in his image, and seeing evil and horror and pain and suffering like that hurts. And even wondering what is going on in the hearts and minds of people that causes that to happen. That's because that is just not the way it's supposed to be at all. God didn't make us like that. That's the ugliness of sin with the mask pulled off. Don't let the wrong around you discourage you from doing what's right, whether it's on a large scale like that or on a small scale with the neighbor and family. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Those doing wrong, what's going on there? They're denying creation. They're denying the accountability to the God who made them. And we will show something different. We will remind them of something different. Whether they like it or not, if that's the thing that they don't like about it, because I simply remind them that they are accountable to God, that's a good thing. Because they need to know that, because they need Jesus' rescue. Jesus himself, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him, God, who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23, Jesus himself trusted himself to God who judges justly. How much more can we? Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Paul says, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that God is able to keep everything that I've entrusted to him against that day, against the day of his glory, against the coming of his kingdom, that God will keep it, God will hold it, I can trust it to him, God will make it all good. God will make it all right. 
I will trust God with my reputation. What people say about me. It's okay, I'll wait for his recognition. I will trust God with my job, my career, to provide for me or my family, to live in contentment with what he provides rather than what I want or think I ought to have. I will serve him first in the midst of my work. I'll do my work in a way that brings glory to God. Whether that's, that seems like I'm working harder than I'm paid or not, it doesn't matter. You see, I'm going to glorify God in the work of my hands, in the job that he's given us. I will trust God to bear fruit in the places he gives me to serve. I won't quit because it doesn't seem to be paying off. I'm going to keep at it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to serve here. It may be in the nursery where you are sowing seeds or where you're ministering to young families and allowing moms and dads to participate in worship in ways that you don't see the fruit of. It may be sowing seeds in children. Maybe it's Sunday school or Awana, and you don't see how those kids grow up in that faith, and will that faith really stick or not? Will it really be worth it? Oftentimes we don't know. Oftentimes we don't see. We don't see the long-term impact of immediate service. And yet God calls us in the immediate over and over and over again. And that's where we must serve him. And then it's going to have to be committing ourselves to God who judges rightly. Commit ourselves to God who will do right. I will continue to show my faith in God at work or at school, God's grace to a colleague, not knowing if that's ever going to make a difference, not knowing if they'll ever see, not knowing if they'll ever care, but I'll do it anyway because that's an expression of God's mercy in our lives. And that's what the world around us needs to see, no matter what they say. My life, your life, is to be an offering of faith. We will trust him to the true and living God. And if it seems like an offering can sometimes be painful, yes, it can. The thing about living sacrifices, Paul calls us to be a, to offer ourselves a living sacrifice. The thing about living sacrifices is what? They tend to crawl off the altar over and over again because it hurts there. It's painful there. But my life is an offering. Our lives are to be an offering of faith to God who is faithful and can be trusted, even as the Son of God who offered his own life for us. Would you pray with me? Father, encourage us. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of times, Lord, when our, our trust in you will not be appreciated, Lord, Remind us to, to continue to be faithful, to trust you, to endure hardship, to endure even the slights or the insults or unfairness from others. Lord, it causes us to be willing to endure these things out of faith in you and even for their sakes. Lord, that as they see our willingness to suffer, even as we behold the cross, as we see Jesus there, who gave his life an offering for our forgiveness in our place. Lord, that we would be willing to suffer a little, to endure a little for the sake of those around us, that there they might see something in Jesus, and that would make all the difference. Lord, even in this offering that we now receive, we would offer ourselves, we would use those white cards, we would entrust ourselves to you in prayer. We'd use those white cards to share something about ourselves, our lives, our, our background, our interests, that we would 
intertwine our lives with others. Father, give us ways that we might give ourselves to you, that our lives and what we have would be an offering that you would use for your praise, for your glory, and even, Lord, for the salvation of those around us. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.